morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumser, and today we're going to be talking with Michael Carton, who is co-founder of a company called Joyous HQ, and we're going to learn all about Joyous today. If you've listened before, I'm sure there are improvements to Joyous we're going to learn about. Michael is an amazing player in our space. In 2006, he founded a company called Sonar 6, which was famous for its performance review suck t-shirts. And six years later, they sold it to Quarterstone, and he's in the middle of this new project called Joyous. How are you, Michael? I'm good. Good to talk to you, John. Been too long. It has been too long. It has been too long. You'd think with all of the sequestering that there'd be more time, but it seems like there's less. Uh, you know, it's just been a relentless year, isn't it? I think we're all suffering from some kind of low-level PTSD, aren't we? You know, it's just like one thing on top of another. And I don't know, I've, I feel like I've never had less time. And yeah, I'm spending less time on airplanes. You'd think that would give me some time back. Well, there's some interesting research from a company that I spent time with called Humanize. And Humanize suggests that before the pandemic, the average person in an organization had three very close relationships, and those are people they spend an hour a week with, and 40 or so second-order relationships, which are people you spend less than 15 minutes a week with. Post-pandemic, it looks like seven close contacts and 15 second-order Wow. And that's exactly what it feels like to be locked in Zoom meetings. Right? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's the same people playing Hollywood Squares around the clock. <laughs> and, and so the world gets smaller and fills up with things that didn't used to be part of it. And so in a space where there should be more time, there's less. It's yeah, I mean, look, we've seen some interesting research too, just in our work at Joyous, just around employee engagement, which is a fairly tired subject. But you actually find that during the initial lockdown, the initial pandemic, you actually had this thing where people felt more connected to people at their work. Yeah, there was a sort of sense that we're all in this together. And now that varied a lot. Yeah, so there were some places where it was different than others. But generally speaking, regardless of whether you all work from home or you're all essential workers or whatever, your connection to your workmates actually increased. But then as time wears on, it's now starting to actually decrease. And I would be concerned, actually, if I was the CEO of virtually any company at the moment, particularly any company that's had a lot of people move to work from home, is that yeah, sometime in the middle of next year, you're just going to go off a cultural and productivity cliff, that it's looming in the future and none of us are really noticing it because we're all sort of on the high of like, well, things, are, you know, things didn't work out as badly as we thought from an engagement perspective. But, you know, I have this sneaking suspicion that it's getting chipped away at day in, day out, and we're going to head to a cliff. But maybe I'm being a pessimist. I don't know. You should, as should anybody listening to this, take a look at my keynote from this year's HR Tech. And in that keynote, there are a couple of things. Most of the people I talk to who have something to do with engagement now understand that the increase in engagement scores that happened up till now, really, is a psychological heroic response to a crisis. And people normally respond in heroic ways to crises. And so there is, in the talk, there is a graph of the post-crisis or post-disaster emotional experience that's used by the Health and Human Services Department that works with disasters. And so you get this screaming increase of heroic motivation 
and it's followed by a dramatic cliff where people realize that they can't do it anymore. And I think that cliff is closer than you do. I think it's this month where right. we hit where we hit the fall off because the next wave of lockdowns are going to feel punitive. Yeah. And they're going to happen starting a couple of weeks from now. And we are going to be, at least in the States, we're going to be locked in our houses till May. So it's eight months. And once people swallow that reality, bottom is going to fall out of engagement because work environments are shabby right now, right? We're getting stuff done. But that thing that I talked about at the beginning, the contraction of the networks, means that when it comes time to move between projects, there's no serendipitous mechanism for people to move between projects. And most project work is not planned, right? There are not great organizations who have a central operating function that says, well, Michael's going to finish his project on Friday. We're moving him over here on Monday. It's more like your work peters out and it's up to you to figure out what you're going to do next. Or it's up to your boss to figure out what you're going to do next. And that is generally fueled by bumping to the people in the halls, which we can't do anymore. Oh, and it's, it's not so only there's that a, too, right? You, the little team that you form around those things and that little team that you form. Yeah, so not the kind of broader approach to the culture, but that kind of little team. Like you sort of learn the behaviors for that team and build the connections often in quite a face-to-face manner. And so that's been okay you know, at the start of this because those things already existed much the same way that your company culture existed and it managed to remain even after people moved to work from home. You know, you've got to be careful you don't ignore the fact that that culture was built as an in-house culture. You know, it was built face-to-face. So the same way that the culture was built face-to-face, often the kind of tight teams that you're working in, the ones which are functional, were built face-to-face as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you're completely right. It's the new stuff that's the problem. Maybe I was just being optimistic on the time frame. <laughs> it may be that you've got a longer time frame there than we have here because the case rate is increasing so rapidly that nobody knows how to make any sense out of it. So you can fairly easily imagine a case rate of 500,000 new cases a day by the end of December. Mm. And that means the entire healthcare system is going to be totally broken down, flooded with cases and a temporary morgues in every city with more than 5,000 people in it. We slipped into, into COVID talk. It's the feature of 2020. No conversation can continue without eventually slipping into the talk. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think that that said, though, yeah, all of those things, the disaster ramps up, and I, I hate to say this, it does actually still, at a human level, bring people together, right? So it's kind of hard to work it out. I think that there's another big effect too, though, right, which is just psychologically. In New Zealand, we're going into summer. You know, in the US, you're going into winter, right? And while in Northern California, I know there is no winter. <laughs> like, yeah, for a lot of the country, yeah, you kind of just have your natural you know, seasonal sort of affective disorder kind of anyway, don't you, right? The energy drops for lots of people, and the way you get through is you tend to look forward to these family events like Thanksgiving and the holiday season, and et cetera, et cetera, and those things are at risk. So I think you know, there's kind of society-wide challenges that, that are that are posed, but they're very different in you know, different parts of the world. Yeah, so let's pull this back to joyous. Why don't you read everybody in on what joyous is and what it does? Sure. Yeah, I mean, look, joyous is closed-loop employee feedback. And it's built for the world's largest organizations. And it is a very, very straightforward idea. 
you know, if you look at the employee feedback industry, there's three features of it which we've really kind of changed. So one is basically the mechanism. So the mechanism used to be one of sending out surveys and then producing results from that by tabulating scores and things like that. What we do is we start lots of frequent little conversations about important topics and then from those conversations which feel very much like having a kind of chatbot conversation on the other side, we have a bunch of AI algorithms that extract the meaning out of that and try and understand you know, what, what the big insights happening in, in the business are. So that's kind of one of the inventions of ours. The next thing is, is that we're all about open feedback. So our feedback is not anonymous. You know, like you attribute feedback. You know, when you provide feedback, it has your name and your avatar next to it. And the whole point of that is that all the organizations we work with are actually trying to increase psychological safety. They're trying to make people feel comfortable giving and receiving feedback. You know, that feedback should bark action. And the way we describe this is every time you send out an anonymous survey, you just reinforce this idea that providing feedback is somehow unsafe. And so we work counter to that. We're all about creating a safe environment to provide feedback. And then the final thing, and I think the bit which is really you know, what's driving us at the moment, what's driving us to such strong growth and why we're being rolled out in so many very, very large organizations, is just the fact that we've taken employee feedback out of the HR vertical. You know, employee feedback always used to be about topics like employee engagement and then you know, more topics may be related to employee experience or culture. But we have clients who use employee feedback in very flexible ways you know, to understand their business practices and ways people are working actual practical things amongst large, often blue-collar workforces about the way that work practices are working. Yeah, so that's, I guess, the long version of it. The short version of it is we're closed-loop feedback. The long version of it is we're trying to disrupt an industry that's absolutely ripe for disruption. So tell me again what closed-loop feedback means. I think you just said that every bit of feedback is public. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's not so much public as the pathway is well known to you, right? So one of the things we're very big on is making sure feedback goes to the right place. Yeah, when I provide feedback, if it's feedback about I don't know, the experience of the employee, well, possibly the best place for that feedback to go is to travel up the hierarchy if I'm a very traditional hierarchical or patriarchal kind of company. So it might be this sort of thing where I, my feedback is visible to my boss and it's visible to my boss's boss all the way up maybe to the CEO. And so as an employee, I kind of understand that, I understand where my feedback's going. Now, it's not visible to everyone, but it's visible to a pathway that I understand. And then there's a lot of variation on that. And one of the things which we're so good at is this idea that, well, actually different places have feedback that goes in different ways. So structurally, you might be, you know, let's say you're an agile organization and you want to make sure that feedback's you know, visible to my squad, but also visible to my tribe. Or otherwise, you know, there might be specific requirements on where feedback goes. So um, I want feedback to go to some kind of subject matter expert rather than just to go to my manager. So it's visible, but it's not just completely open. It's open to like the people that feedback's most relevant to. And I understand as the person providing that feedback where that feedback is going. So if I've got, you know, I'm spending a lot of my time looking at diversity, inclusion, and the stuff that occupies people who are at the edges of the organization. And one of the things in current configurations, it shouldn't be the case, but in current configurations, the victim always is responsible for reporting. And so it, mm. so it takes an act of courage to report that my boss is sexually harassing me or my boss is making decisions about the work that I do and the evaluation that I get based on my race. And so some of that stuff, it's, it's a political hot potato. How does an open feedback system handle political hot potatoes? Yeah. And so 
this is an interesting thing, right? So there's, there's you know, more than one piece to unpacking this. But the, the most important thing is that some things are actually exceptions to the feedback process, and sometimes the feedback process is built around the exception. So I guess the sort of piece of HR bullshit de jour that always does my head in is this idea that our organisation can only do an anonymous staff survey because we have issues with trust. I'm doing inverted commas at the moment. Well, the reality of that is that what you should focus on is fixing that trust issue, right? Because it turns out that none of your employees trust that your anonymous survey is even anonymous. And in fact, if you're talking about things which are at the, at the edges, like maybe dealing with harassment or something, well, probably that's an exception to your normal feedback process rather than the general rule of how I get a feedback. And what we've done is we've done a lot of work on this idea that, well, you create a, a non-ego bruising way of providing feedback. And so you look at outcomes for employees rather than looking at kind of leadership behaviours. And so you might start conversations which relate to things which help us understand fairness or understand inclusion, like you mentioned, or understand these different sort of things. And then we can apply to that data, you know, our lens driven by AI and, and other algorithms, to actually identify whether there's kind of patterns of behaviour and patterns of, of experience for employees that maybe suggest some of those issues you're talking about. But I also want to be very clear, you know, we're not a whistleblowing mechanism. Your, you know, your employee feedback approach should include mechanisms for providing confidential feedback. But a kind of company-wide anonymous survey is definitely not the mechanism to identify those sort of things. Or when I say identify those sort of things, it might be okay for identifying, but it's not the place to solve them. It's not the place to actually provide action. Because what employees in that situation want is they want the sense that they can provide confidential rather than anonymous feedback. And that someone will take that seriously and someone will do something about it. And that's often filling in a form on a survey doesn't give you that sense, does it? So let's talk about engagement then. I'm sure you recall that I think engagement is poppycock, for the simplest way of putting it. Mm-hmm. But now we've got an environment where many of the people in our organizations are confined to their houses, more or less, suffering financial insecurity, more or less, having trouble getting normal resources, more or less. And those variables are the variables that the Department of Defense looks at as causing PTSD in wartime, right? That's what it's like to live during wartime is all of the variables that we're encountering. And PTSD is rampant in the population during wartime. What I think you get then is feedback with an economic intent that's variable, right? And so the idea that what emerges from the employee population on the record in public is calculated to achieve an economic effect rather than being the spontaneous expression of what's going on inside of the organization. So you've got this big data collection system, and it's not exactly clear what the meaning of the material not the NLP analysis of the content meaning, but the actual meaning of it. You know, I'm telling you I like my boss because I want to keep my job. And what you get is I like my boss. And the willingness to point out flaws, you know, the ability of an employee to go, oh, that emperor thinks he's got a suit on, but he's naked, diminishes when you have this level of stress in the workplace. So the feedback is not as clear. And so my question is, how do you express that in a tool that's designed to examine the engagement of the population? Yeah, let me take a step back. I mean, the important thing is, is that we're not that focused on measurement. 
we're much more focused on creating an environment where a lot of actions can take place. So it's one of the great things about open feedback. At the most practical level, you've got plenty of people out there measuring the impact of work from home and trying to understand that and understand it in complex ways. And and I'll, I'll touch on that in a second. But fundamentally, what we do is we actually create a cadence of feedback that leaders and other people can interact with. So maybe you find that someone has got a challenge working from home because of I don't know, just to say something simple, they don't have a chair. Well, you can kind of address that at a micro-action level. So the feedback kind of says, oh, this person doesn't have a chair, I'll make sure we send them a chair. So, you know, there is this thing which is that feedback's not just about measurement. Feedback can be about creating a lot of action. But on kind of question, you know, that you described, which is, you know, really more about can you measure some of the stuff. So on the way that I look at that, and I don't want to be unfair here, but you're modeling any level of employee engagement or experience is almost impossible. And this is coming from someone who spends a lot of time in the space and trying to understand and understand science. And what I would say is that the mathematicians would give up, yet kind of plucky HR practitioners weighed in. Work is a very complex system, right? It's, it's composed of many components that they interact with each other and they interact with the outside world. And lots of these components are human beings who are in themselves complex systems. So the behavior of this kind of system is super difficult to model due to all of the different dependencies and competitions and other types of interactions between the parts, right? And so you can definitely get some insights from understanding things, but actually to say, well, I've built a kind of model. I've simplified the world of work to a model now where I can go from inputs, which are different pieces of the experience of the employee, and that that adds up to engagement and that engagement leads to productivity, is frankly a pile of ass sold to people by some of these big consultancies, whereas the reality is quite different. So from a feedback perspective, you need to be able to try and draw commonalities and macros and insights which you can act on, but those are not often about engagement. They might tell you that you know, people who have children struggle with your hot desking policy or something. They're not necessarily the sort of thing of, of kind of understanding engagement in classical terms or EMPS terms. But then very, very importantly, you've actually got to use feedback as a mechanism to create change at a micro level so that people understand what's going on and there's a normative effect of feedback rather than some kind of instrumentation to measure a model which is flawed to start with. That's so interesting. So we're having as cultures to learn how to talk more plainly about mental illness. Back to the topic du jour, one in five COVID survivors has an episode of mental illness within 90 days of diagnosis. And that's probably on the low end. That means that that we have to be able to talk about mental illness in a way that's like, I can't come to work today because I have a really bad cold, should be the rough equivalent of, I can't come to work today because I have a really bad depression. And we're not there. And so you would guess that feedback systems will be the way that we break through old taboos. There are tons of them. If we go back to offices, we're going to have to be able to talk about the bathroom because that is the hot spot for germs in the organization. And so we need to talk about who's allowed in there, what good hygiene looks like, blah, 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 blah. Can a feedback system help with those kinds of changes? Yeah, so this is the great thing, right, which is that what you're trying to deal with is difficult human interactions. I mean, that's what you're describing, right? Um, You know, human interactions that are not not easy. 
And so what you can actually do is you can actually start to structure that up for people. You know, so you can actually start to ask questions which help anyone in the organisation either express things which might be difficult to, to express or you know, help others in the organisation understand people's challenges and so on. And so uh, workplace well-being is a great example, right? Because workplace well-being is one of those things that is just very poorly understood by a lot of people, whether they're middle managers or even employees trying to, I guess, express the challenges that they're having. So the idea is that workplace well-being is actually a, a kind of spectrum in classical terms. Some people are languishing and some people are flourishing and actually you know, everyone's on that spectrum. And part of my role as a leader is to actually just shift people towards the right. So don't think of workplace well-being as a binary, you're either good or you're bad, actually realise it's a spectrum and so on. Well, actually to equip people with that, you've got to actually help them out with the kind of questions you should ask, questions about workload or questions about support and security and those sorts of things, but actually start conversations on those kind of topics because they're not topics you would start conversations on naturally either you know around the water cooler or, or via Zoom. And so a, a lot of it is just um, you know, creating a cadence of, of um, you know, conversations about the topics that are important. And you know, we're very, very good now at structuring those in a way that are, you know, is, is non-ego bruising and optimistic and people feel comfort. Yeah, we've got a big sign on our wall in our research and engineering lab, and it just says, help everyone feel comfortable giving and receiving feedback. And that's really the thrust of employee feedback. It's about creating an environment where people feel comfortable both giving feedback and people feel comfortable receiving and dealing with it. You know? Because if you want feedback to create action, you can't have people sitting there going, oh, I'm worrying about the feedback. You know, you've got to actually have people taking a proactive stance to it. I'll tell you, it's an interesting question. You know. I bet you have some guidelines about how to ask for feedback that'd be fun to hear. I made the mistake recently of asking a group of people for feedback about some work that I'd done, and it was a mistake. It was a mistake, and it was a mistake because I wasn't specific about the feedback that I wanted. <laughs> so I was brutalized for a day with feedback that was really interesting and really well thought out and had nothing to do with the problem that I was trying to solve. <laughs> so, right. You know, so you've, you've identified a critical thing there, though. Tell me. I mean, this is the challenge, is that people are off there kind of asking for feedback about, I don't know, the classic examples, and going to ask for feedback about something that's never going to change. You know, there's just no point. <laughs> it's like, you know, if you want to demoralize employees, ask them for feedback on some situation you have no intention of ever changing. And we see that sort of stuff all the time. I mean, you've got to be careful too, because the idea of feedback, for some reason, some people think that feedback is, they've kind of associated with sort of personal criticism. And that's just not the nature of, of all feedback. I mean, for a start, most feedback in organizations is actually you know, optimistic and positive. You know, so feedback could be, yeah, John, I really love this work you've done here. It's like, it makes me feel proud of our team. That is feedback, right? Feedback isn't, oh, I think that I'm concerned about this or, or that, you know. This idea of unknown criticism is the thing that just does my head in. This idea that I'm just going to go out there and criticize another human being, and we're still going to do it hiding behind some kind of anonymous survey. Yeah, you know, if you want to build that kind of culture, yeah, go ahead, but you're not going to be one of our clients. Yeah, you really want to have a scenario where <laughs> actually you help people, you help people understand that feedback's a positive thing most of the time and that feedback is good for the organisation and that we actually all feel better when we feel comfortable that we can actually you know, talk to people and respond. It's always amazing to see what you've learned since we last talked. And we are at the edges of our time together. So what do you want somebody listening to this conversation to take away? 
Look, I think that the most important two things really is, one is that some of our traditional thoughts about modelling and measuring things like employee engagement and so on are really just kind of circle jerks. You know, they're not really something where we're actually making a difference to the organisation. I think that everyone who's implementing some big system to try and measure some things, you know, like engagement or so on, is probably just trying to measure some kind of proxy for culture because people know that culture is important, but no one really knows how it works. And you should replace that mentality with one of creating an environment where lots and lots of little actions can take place and that, that actually you can kind of get out there and have less of a focus on measurement and more of a focus on actually creating the action at that kind of micro level. Yeah, and I think you know, the other part of it is that there's one kind of takeaway sentence. It's just that anonymous surveys destroy trust. That is the thing which is the revelation for me you know, after the last sort of four years of research is I can tell you fundamentally that anonymous surveys destroy trust. And so as soon as you start with that piece of provocation, you'll change your world. Got it. Well, what a great conversation. Thanks for taking the time to do it. It is always a treat to catch up with you. Please reintroduce yourself and tell people how to get a hold of you. Sure. So I'm Mike Carden. I'm from Joyous. And to get more information on Joyous, visit joyoushq.com. Perfect. Thanks for doing this, Michael. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. We've been talking with Michael Carton, the co-founder of Joyous HQ. And we will see you back here same time next week. Bye-bye now. Mm-hmm.